0: This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolfe. Today, I will be reading two stories, It Will Grow on You, and Holes Incorporated by Louise. Le Pierre, pen name of L. Uh, her pen name was L. Major Reynolds. In the background, we are listening to interpersonal data by Philippe Vandal and Joanna Gould from Fault Records in Marseille, France. I will be reading, It Will Grow on You, by L. Major Reynolds, which was first published in Nebula Science Fiction, December of 1953. When the little creatures of the fields began to die, no one imagined that the deaths might spread. It Will Grow on You, by L. Major Reynolds. The bit of something did a little pirouette in the breeze from the open door. It lifted easily and floated down the long hall. Another door opened and suction took it into a room. It nestled close to the sleeping form of a dog. Huddling nearer, it seemed to vibrate. It grew with incredible rapidity for a moment. The dog shuddered moaned and died the thing was stronger now no longer entirely dependent on the breeze a sort of mobility had been attained steps sounded and a foot came close a mighty effort and the thing was clinging to the side of a shoe clinging in desperation of the desire it felt The need of the life forces even seeping through the heavy leather. For long moments it clung, gaining strength with each passing minute. The shoe was removed, flung away. The thing slid into a corner. Helen, I'm going to lie down for a while. I'm feeling rotten. The man was on the bed, out of reach. "'The thing waited. "'All right, dear, I'm going to the store. "'It's so hot. "'I'll bring you some beer. "'You'll feel better after a little rest. "'I'm leaving the door open.' "'Silence. "'And the thing itching against "'the once-friendly breeze. grown now to the size of a mouse "'and almost visible.' Crazy angles passing over its surface, almost alive. Hungry, avidly hungry. The door at last. A stream of ants busily carrying away a bit of sugar. And then the line sprawled. In the pseudo-comedy of death. Tiny bit by tiny bit the thing gained. A small kitten at play on the path was left in the bare-fanged grin of extinction, stronger now. A group of children running in the inexhaustible vigor of childhood. Then one was carried away, white and almost strained of the precious energy of life. The thing was active. Doc, you've got to save her. It would kill her mother if anything happened to her baby. She isn't going to die, is she? No, but it was a close call. She'll be all right. Can't figure out what happened. I gave her a checkup last week, and she was in perfect health. This is one of the things we say couldn't happen, and then they do. If another attack like this strikes her, though, there will be no hope. Thanks, Doc. I'll watch her like a hawk. Where can I reach you if I have to? My office will know where I am at all times. Call me tonight, in any case, and let me know how she is. The thing waited patiently, moving at will now, but still hungry. Waiting in a dry gutter for anything, visible at last, afraid. The first inkling of fear of discovery. A pair of lovers, arm in arm, strolling down the walk. A gradual weakening and the bewildered boy staring wide-eyed at the crumpled form. I don't understand this. Your sweetheart is the second one today to have the same thing happen. The doctor was puzzled. And old Mr. Everett's death was certainly particular. The coroner can't find any reason for it. "'His heart was all right. "'I gave him a going over about a month ago. "'And even Pete Blaine's old horse toppled over today. "'Something's fishy about all this. "'What can we do, doctor?' "'The boy was white-faced from strain. "'We can't let anything like this go on. "'What would cause anything like it?' "'I've told you I don't know. "'If I did, there would be something to be done about it. "'However, I'm going to call the police.' They may be able to find the cause. The thing lay concealed behind a thick hedge, partially sated. Lying quietly for the moment, a green-winged lunar moth lit on a low, hanging branch and toppled to spread crumpled wings in the dappled arrays of moonlight. Still the thing hungered, now in the first stirrings of knowledge. Visible now to any eyes, only a faint pattern of the other world, coruscations on its surface, shapeless as yet, neither knowing nor caring, the only emotion, the sating of the insatiable hunger, energy to live, energy to build. The tiny crawling and flying thing of the night, each giving under protest their bit of life. A wee, heavy-uttered field mouse, hurrying home, stopped to moulder where she lay, her nest of babies waiting in vain. The thing cringed at the sudden volume of loud voices and the blaze of light. I talked to the doc myself, and he said it must be some kind of animal. But none of the kids saw anything this afternoon. I don't believe in spooks. The sergeant of police didn't sound as confident as he would have liked. Have they finished searching that last yard yet? If they have, let's get going on this one. A hand came through the hedge, directly in front of the thing. The instinct of hunger fought a brief battle with the faint bit of knowledge, and instinct won. The hand groped for a moment, and then it was snatched back. Look at my hand. It feels like it's dead. Whatever the thing is, it's in the hedge. Give me a club. A smashing impact through the hedge and a direct hit in the center of the thing. Wave after wave. And hitherto, unknown pain struck in blinding flashes. Frantically, it squirmed away to seek a hiding place. I think I hit it. Throw a light over here. The club landed on something soft. Here's the place. See the open part in the hedge where my club went through? Nothing there now, but I hit something. The search went on, and the thing lying under a parked car at the curb suffered almost audibly. The hard-won energy was fading fast in the unceasing surges of pain. It shrunk rapidly into invisibility again, but the knowledge it had gained remained. The search moved on, and welcome darkness came. A few yards... From where the thing lay Was the opening of a sewer Long agonizing moments it took to travel that small space Then haven at last Hey Jim, take a look at this sewage before it gets into the tank Did you ever see so many dead rats? I've seen at least 50 of them this morning Suppose it might be some kind of an epidemic among them Search me but we'd better fish out a couple and send them to the Board of Health. No use taking chances. I've been here 20 years, and I've never seen anything like it before. Hand me that net. The thing was thriving, gaining in size, and learning fast. It crouched by the opening of the sewer and watched the outer world. Never again would it make the mistake of taking too much from the one always the little from the many. A dog ventured too close to the opening and was gone. The thing looked long at the shape before it, and knowledge came to the fore. Slowly it formed the shape of its victim. A cautious few steps outside, and the glad cries of the children... A single thought, a little from the many, but the avid hunger remained. If I didn't know any better, I'd swear there was an epidemic of anemia in this part of town. The doctor was mumbling to himself. Seems as if every child has the same symptoms. Sort of don't care attitude. They act as if they were about half alive. Half alive? Good God, that must be it. Miss Crane, get the police. The doctor was in a frenzy. The sergeant was speaking. I know there was something there that night. I felt the club hit it. And what about all those dead bugs and the little mouse we found? The men all kid me about wanting to be a hero. But Doc, I know there was something behind that hedge. I know there was, sergeant, but I can't tell you what you hit. Whatever it was, it's back again, and I'm licked. We can't keep every child in town under lock and key. We'll get the men together, and we'll start looking again. And look they did, in daylight this time, accompanied by the languid, children, and a frisky dog. An affectionate dog, who would lean against a leg for a moment, or beg for a caress. The search went on relentlessly. Even into the tree cu- tops. Hey kids, whose dog is this? Try to keep him away. I've stepped on him a dozen times. That's Rusty. He plays with us all the time now. He didn't used to like to play with us, but he does now. The ungrammatical insight of childhood. Well, keep him with you and away from this. We're too busy to bother with him. Here, kid, pick him up and hold him. Two hours later, one of the searchers looked in the sewer opening and pulled out a carcass of a brown dog. Hey, that's Rusty. See, that's his collar. We were looking all over for him. A medley of childish voices. A crumpled form lay in the street. The friendly dog was gone. The doctor was grim. Sergeant, keep a man detailed to this block to kill any strange-looking creature on sight. Don't even let it get near any of the children, or adults either. I have no idea what that thing was, but I know it wasn't a dog. Help me with this child. The thing was back in the sewer again. Once more, hunger had triumphed over knowledge. It was eager now. The taste of the outside world. It had known called for return it came out at night now and watched watched and gained watched and learned the way of the lovers in their nightly strollings the clasped hands the stolen kisses always a contact the contact needed for taking of precious energy the rats died by hundreds so little food In so short a life, so little from so many, slowly the thing grew. Knowledge at last of the way, the long crawling change. Watchful hours taught the need of clothing, and little by little the need was collected. The shape took the form of a girl. The thing stood on the street corner and looked about. It went slowly down the walk, pursued by two ardent males. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolfe. That was It Will Grow on You by L. Major Reynolds with interpersonal data by Felipe Vandal and Joanna Gould in the background. Now we are listening to Clips, A Side by Masaki Yuku Yuki Eman Nishi from Soft Era Records in Thornhill, UK. The story we just heard, It Will Grow on You by L. Major Reynolds, was first published in Nebula Science Fiction, number six, December 1953. Now, the strange thing was I also found Blight, which was first published in 1948 and later republished in famous Fantastic Mysteries, February 1952. Unexpectedly, as far as I could tell, with a brief skim of Blight and It Will Grow on You, they were the same story. Also, while multiple sources said Blight was first published in 1948, I couldn't figure out what magazine it was published in. No one actually said where, and then I found other sources that said it was first published in 1952. So, what can you do? I also could find very little about Louise LePierre, who wrote under the pseudonym L. Major Reynolds. She was born in Kansas in 1899 and was a California housewife, and she died in 1969. She published about a dozen stories between 1950 and 1955 and was an active member of the Los Angeles Science Fanity, Fantasy Society. We'll hear another story by her later, but until then, we'll listen to clips A. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolfe. Next, I'll be reading Holes Incorporated by L. Major Reynolds, which was first pu- published in Worlds of If in September 1952. Would you like to see all hell break loose? Just make a few holes in nothing at all. Push some steel beams through the holes, and then head for the hills. But first, read what happened to some people who really did it. Holes Incorporated by L. Major Reynolds. The red-headed secretary asked, Names, please? Ted Baker. Bill Steffens. See, H. Joshua Blair, we have an appointment. It's for 3.30. We called up two weeks ago. The secretary said, Oh, yes, I have you on the list. She checked them off, studied them vaguely. What was it you wanted to see Mr. Blair about? Ted Baker held out a small steel box he was carrying. About this. Ah, what is it? It's a box. I can see that, the redhead snapped. What is it for? What does it do? It's for construction. It makes holes. The girl sighed. It was late in the day, and she didn't care much, really. She snapped an intercom button. An inquiring voice rasped at her. She said... A Mr. Baker and Mr. Stevens, to see you.' "'Evidently, it was all right, "'because she snapped off the button and pointed to the door. "'In there!' "'They went in the door and faced a desk large enough to play tennis on. "'The man behind the desk gave them a cordial snarl. "'Well, what have you got on your mind?' And don't take all day to tell me. Ted extended the box. This. We'd like to sell it to you. What is it? A bomb? No, sir. It makes holes. It makes holes real quick. Blair scowled at the box. What the hell do I want holes for? Bill Steffens came forward with further explanation. You see, sir, Ted and I are inventors. We make, well, things. We've been working on this invention in our basement, and it seems to be a success. We don't quite know why it's a success, Ted said, but it is. We'd like to demonstrate it for you. Well, go ahead and demonstrate. Ted raised the box and aimed it horizontally at nothing in particular. He pressed a black button. There was an odd whirring noise. He took his hand off the button and lowered the box. What are you waiting for? Nothing, that's it. I made a hole. Are you too crazy? What kind of a fool trick? Ted reached down and took a pencil off the desk may I borrow this without waiting for permission he put the pencil carefully into the place he had pointed the box half of the pencil disappeared he took his hand away the part of the pencil still in sight didn't come with it it stayed where it was lying in thin air horizontally with no apparent support H. Joshua Blair goggled and turned three shades whiter. What? What the hell? And now, if you try to move the pencil, the demonstration will be complete. Like a man in a trance, Blair got up from his desk and grasped the pencil. It wouldn't move. He got red in the face and threw all his weight on it. It would neither pull nor push. It stayed where it was. Finally, Blair backed away from the thing. He leaned on his desk and panted. You see, Ted said, the hole goes into the fourth dimension. There's no other explanation, and the fourth dimension holds solider than concrete. Old Blair's head was spinning, but business instinct came quickly to his rescue. What happens? he asked. If something in the third dimension is in the way. It gets out of the way, Bill said. Ted demonstrated. He trained the box on the visible remains of the pencil. It vanished. We'll all be damned. We figured this will save you a lot of money in the construction work, Bill said. You can get along without rivets. You can just have a man put holes in girders with this and push the rivets through. You also make holes for the beam ends, and your entire building will be anchored in the fourth dimension. Do it again, Blair said. Ted made another hole and put another pencil into it. Blair grasped the pencil and applied leverage. The pencil snapped at the point it entered the next dimension. But the broken end of the far piece was not to be seen. Blair asked, you said you two invented this gadget? That's right, Bill said. We've got a workshop in my basement. We invent it in the evenings after we come home from work. What do you work at? I read gas meters. He's a clerk in a supermarket. I suppose you want money for this thing? We'd like to sell it. Yes, sir. How much do you want for it? Well, we don't know. What is it worth to you? Nothing, probably. Leave it here for a few days. I'll look over at it and let you know. But... Don't call me. I'll call you. But Leave your address and phone number with my secretary After Ted and Bill left, Blair yelled Give me Jack's statement in the engineering department He didn't bother using the intercom But his secretary heard him anyhow Ted and Bill went to work on an idea they had for the treatment of leather. You dipped your shoes in a solution and they lasted forever. The thing didn't work too well, however. It was full of bugs. They tried to eliminate the bugs, and once in a while, they thought of H. Joshua Blair. Do you think it's about time he called us? Ted asked. Don't be so impatient. He's a big man. He owns a big company. It takes time. He's had over a month. Relax, we'll hear from him. Another week passed, and another, until one evening Ted came galloping in the workshop with news. There's a big addition to the city hall. They're working on it. H. Joshua Blair Construction Company. A big sign says so. Relax, you'll blow a tube. Relax, hell, he's using our invention to put up steel girders, just like we suggested to him. Guys with boxes like ours making holes and putting rivets in. Bill stopped what he was doing. He said he'd call us. Maybe he forgot. Maybe we'd better go see him. They both knocked off work the next day and got to Blair's office at 9 o'clock. The red-headed secretary said... You'll have to make an appointment. Appointment? Hell! Ted headed for the inner door. Bill followed him. They went into H. Joshua Blair's office to find him in conference with two vice presidents. Ted said, Mr. Blair, we came. Who the devil are you? You remember us, Ted Baker and Bill Stevens. We came about our invention. What invention? Our hole maker. You're using it on the City Hall edition. Blair glowered. Where'd you get the idea it was yours? Have you got any patents to show? Well, no, we didn't. I did. Fourteen good solid patents. You two better go peddle your groceries. Now look, Mr. Blair... "'Blair raised his voice. "'Throw these two bums out!' Three huskies appeared, as by magic, to do Blair's bidding. "'As Ted and Bill landed on the sidewalk, "'one of the vice presidents said, "'Do you think that was smart, H.J.? "'They might cause trouble.' "'Blair snorted. "'They haven't got a prayer. "'A meter reader and a grocery clerk? "'We could have at least given them a few hundred.' Not on your life. Never give a sucker an even break, Jim. Give them anything at all. We acknowledge their claim. That'll be stupid. Maybe you're right. Of course I'm right. It's business. Now about those other bids by GAD. We can run every contractor in town out of competition. They can't touch our prices. Out on the sidewalk, Bill and Ted sat mournfully looking up. At the vast steel skeleton, held together literally by their own genius. Ted said, We got a raw deal. Maybe we had it coming. We were pretty stupid. Anything we can do? Doesn't look like it. Maybe the leather solution will turn out. Maybe Bill looked wistfully up at the steel skeleton. At even a cent a hole, we'd have done all right. Let's go home and get to work. In the mighty and benevolent kingdom of Skatsia, a minor reign of terror existed. The king, tired of complaints from his subjects, had just finished dressing down his prime minister. The prime minister was passing the abuse on to his chief scientist. "'If something isn't done about this soon, I won't be responsible for your head, my friend. "'The king is in a rage.' "'The eyes of the chief scientist watered, partly from fear and partly from nights "'and days spent in his laboratory, beating out his brain on one idea after another. "'I'll do my best, sire. "'It's not good enough. "'These steel girders coming out of nowhere, banging people in the head, whacking them in the stomach.' Why, it isn't safe to walk through the halls of the administration building. Even the bedrooms of the executive apartments aren't safe. The other night, the director of propaganda had just gone to bed. I know of the incident, the chief scientist said hurriedly. Oh, you do? But you've done nothing about... I've been working hard, the scientist said patiently, and I think I have a solution. Give me another day. One day, then, and that! The Prime Minister made a significant slicing motion with his finger. The Prime Minister chewed his fingernails and watched the clock. Sleep was out of the question, with the King calling up every little while, yelling for action. The Minister counted the hours and presented himself at the Royal Laboratory precisely 24 hours later. Time's up! he snapped. The chief scientist was wiping his face. There were new lines around his mouth. He'd indicated a small steel box. I think I've got it, he said. Come with me. They went swiftly to the administration building. This should be close enough. We depress this lever and and hope. Well, do it, "'Do it!' "'The chief scientist pushed the lever on the steel box. "'A whirring sound came from within. "'All the steel girders end in sight. "'All the nasty little rivets disappeared. "'The chief scientist smiled and wiped his face again. "'It worked,' he said. "'Excellent. I'll see that you get a medal.' "'Thank you,' the chief scientist said sadly. "'That was the trouble with people nowadays.' They either handed you a medal or your head. Ted and Bill stared sadly at the mess around City Hall. Bill said, "'It's a good thing it collapsed at night, "'so nobody was killed, isn't it?' "'You said it. "'I'd have felt guilty if there had been any casualties.' "'What do you suppose went wrong?' "'You got me. "'What do you think they'll do to old Blair?' I don't know, but it looks pretty bad. They refused to let him out on bail. Serves him right, the way he treated us. You got it wrong. He treated us swell. He did us a big favor. We could have been blamed for all this. Bill thought it over before saying, I guess you're right. I hadn't looked at it that way. Let's go home and get to work on that leather solution. And so they did. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolfe. That was Holes Incorporated by Louise LePierre, a pen name of L. Major Reynolds, uh, which was first published, the pen name being L. Major Reynolds for Louise LePierre. Um, which was first published in World of If, September 1952. In the background, we are listening to Winterist B by Jeff Germain Uh, in Holes Incorporated. Two men find a way to make construction go faster by cutting holes into the fourth dimension. It turns out that the fourth dimension is inhabited by beings who are not happy with these intrusions. I thought we could talk a little bit about the fourth dimension. So, typically we think of one dimension as a point, two dimension as a square, and the third dimension as a cube. Now, the fourth dimension can mean different things depending on who you're talking to, what theory, or the context. So, sometimes we think of the fourth dimension as time. Uh, Fourth dimension has also been thought of as a step up from the third dimension in space. And lastly, there's the idea of uh, dimensions in string theory. So, The idea of the fourth dimension being time was brought to prominence by Einstein. So, in physics, space-time is a mathematical model that fuses three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time into a single four-dimensional continuum. So, Albert Einstein, in 1905 based his seminal work on special relativity on the two postulates, that the laws of physics are invariant, as in they're identical, in all inertial systems, so in all systems that are not in an accelerating frame of reference, and that the speed of light in a vacuum is the same for all observers, regardless of the motion of the light source. So this then brings them to the idea that the fourth dimension would be time. And this is very similar to actually Galileo's principle of relativity. which, in that, the mechanical laws of physics are the same for every inertial observer, and by observing the outcome of mechanical experiments, one cannot distinguish a state of rest from a state of constant velocity. So, what he's saying there is that if you're observing a single moment, you can't actually tell the difference between something that's moving and something that isn't moving. So, compared to Aristotle's idea that time would be a rigid stack of planes, like like if each moment was a plane, right? So, our experience of the world would be like a deck. Uh, So we'd have, like moment now, moment in the future, moment in the future, and each one of those is a plane. And so Galileo said, rather than that being a rigid stack of planes, it's a stack of planes that are allowed to be slanted. So kind of like as you can change the tilt of the stack. So think about it, if you have a deck of cards and you kind of push it and it leans in one direction, that would be the idea that uh, time is can be this space that actually dynamically moves uh, compared to just being this standal, standard progression forward. Another way to think about the fourth dimension, mathematically, is to visualize it by projecting it down into three dimensions. So again, we talked earlier about like a point being um, one dimension, a line being two dimensions, a s- Sorry, yeah, a line or a, a or a square being two dimensions, and then three dimensions is a cube. So the idea then is, well, what would be the equivalent of a cube in four dimensions? And how some people look at that is through the idea of a hypercube, which you can like Google it online. It looks pretty cool. So pretty much it's looks like if you had a cube but then you kind of blew bubbles out from the cube so it has like a cube on side on on each part of the cube like so each face of the cube has a cube attached to it that is like more rounded instead of just uh becoming this more standard shape um And actually, when you rotate it, it looks like it's moving. It's like the inside is coming out of it and going into it, which is really cool. I think hypercubes are awesome. Anyway, uh, so actually when you're rotating, the inside is going out and the outside is going in. When you project what a four-dimensional cube would be into three-dimensional space. So I like to think about this. Um, if you've read the book or heard of the story Flatland I actually didn't finish reading it because when it was written it was a social commentary but the way the social commentary is written women are viewed as these like very vapid subservient useless Group of people, and while it was social commentary at the time, I should pull up. Well, it was social commentary at the time when it was published in 1884, because women were viewed as, you know, not very useful. When reading it in modern times, I'm kind of like, it's really offensive, and I had a lot of trouble getting into it. But anyway, and the idea of Flatland is that it's a world where everything is two-dimensional. And then, so everything is on a plane, like people are triangles or squares, but there's no, nobody's a cube. And then this flat world interacts with a three-dimensional object. So how would you view if you took your hand and you stuck it into a 2D world, you would just see slices of the hand and how would you experience that hand? So that's, that's another way kind of to think about, well, how would you see f- a four dimensional object in a three dimensional space? So, hypercubes are cool. <laughs> And actually, we have uh, some people doing research on this at UCSB. I'm actually in the Media, Arts, and Technology program here. And in the Allosphere Research Group, there are students who are visualizing different four-dimensional spaces in our 3D space of the Allosphere. So if you want to walk into a hypercube or more of these four-dimensional objects projected into three-dimensional spaces, you can do that in the Allosphere here at UCSB. So, outside of that, um, we have another way to view... Okay, so let's think about that in relationship to the story. In the story that we just read, they were throwing... They were, like, cutting holes and putting objects into the fourth dimension where they no longer exist. And... I'm, that doesn't really work with this idea of, like, four-dimensional hypercube, because even if there was a fourth dimension where there were these people that lived outside of us, they would still be aware of us and our three-dimensionality in their four-dimensional world. So their idea that four dimensions are... is this world, the fourth dimension is this world where we can shove things but we don't actually uh, exist in it doesn't actually make sense in like a hypercube kind of idea of four dimensions. And I guess lastly, we can talk about uh, dimensions in relationship to string theory. Uh, String theory is a theoretical framework where point-like particles of particle physics are replaced with one-dimensional objects called strings. And the theory describes how these strings... um, move through space and interact with each other and a lot of um, a common theory and string theory is the M theory which has 11 dimensions and string theory is studied heavily here in the theoretical physics department at UCSB. So if you want to hear about string theory go talk to a physicist but uh, string theory doesn't really fit in the idea of the fourth dimension where construction mirrors materials can move into. Like, that doesn't work there either. So, now that we've had this thorough analysis of the relationship between the story and dimensions, I think I will leave you guys to listen to our last song, which will be... uh in the background, we've been listening to Echoes by Joss Smolders. And after that, we will be listening to Rain in Our Room by Tapes and topologies This has been Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. You can hear me every week if you tune in Saturdays at 7, I run till 8, and we read stories by female authors, A lot of, most of them from the 50s, so if you want to hear some more, come back next week. And, But you can stay tuned and hear more awesome music here at, on KCSB.